Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Tonight we will be studying 2 John, one of the other unknowns of Scripture. 2 John. I hope you saw the answers to those questions that I put before you. If not, I trust by the time we are finished tonight, you will clearly have those answers. If you don't have an outline, this is the time to raise your hand and the ushers will see to it that you have one. So if you don't have one, raise your hand and uh, keep it up so they can see who you are and we'll make sure you have one. Second John. First, let's look at the introduction and the greeting in verses 1 through 3. John writes, he says, the elder... That's John the Apostle, John who was the disciple, John who wrote the Gospel of John, John who wrote the book of Revelation, and has also written 1 John and will write 3 John. Uh, Why does he call himself the elder? Well, he calls himself the elder probably because he is one of the last apostles living and he has a very high position of authority in the early church. Therefore, he doesn't say an elder, but the elder, because his authority would reach beyond simply one local church as if he were an elder of a church. Now, they know he's an apostle, so he does not use that title, but rather refers to himself as the elder, uh, the senior spokesman for the church of that time, uh, you might, uh, might say. Uh, John probably lived longer than any of the other original disciples of Christ. You remember 90 AD, uh, he was on the Isle of Patmos writing uh, the book of Revelation as God revealed it to him. And this letter dates around that same time. Now the question is, who is he writing to? He says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children. Now some people have said, well, he's writing to uh, a lady that he knows and to her family. But others have said, and I believe, that he's writing to a particular church and to its members. And he refers to the church as the lady and the members as her children. Now this was a practice that was done fairly often in early Christian days because they endured such intense persecution in order to safeguard the recipients of a letter as if it might fall into the wrong hands. And they might say, aha, see, this is written to uh, John Jones over here. So, hey, he's a Christian. Let's go after him. They would write rather cryptic uh, introductions or use symbolic names to designate churches. And I believe John did this as he wrote to the chosen lady. Again, those who've been chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. And your children, those Christian members. Now also, Peter does this same thing. Take your Bible, hold your place, and turn over to the left a few pages to 1 Peter chapter 5. He does this same thing, uses a symbolic name to represent someone in his letters. 1 Peter chapter 5, look in verse 13. He says, she who is in Babylon, 
chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and does, and so does my son Mark. Now many believe that there he's speaking of the church in Rome. As you know, Babylon wasn't even around back then. It long ceased to be. And so you know he's not literal there, but rather symbolic. And so again, as we look in the New Testament and other places, we see the church is again spoken of sometimes as a lady. In the case of Ephesians chapter 5, where it speaks of Christ as the husband and the church as the wife. And so this is a practice done in the New Testament. And I think John's using the same technique back in 2 John to refer to the church. Now also notice in verse 13, he says, The children of your chosen sister greet you. Again, another church and its members also greet this church that John is writing to. Now in this introduction and greeting, John stresses the importance of truth. He stresses the importance of truth. Uh, Truth occurs four times in the first three verses. Now I want you to notice each time it occurs. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Four times in three verses he mentions truth. Now John is stressing truth. Now why is he doing that? Well, it helps to realize the historical setting of this letter. John is battling what was known as Gnosticism, a heresy of that day. And the basic teaching of Gnosticism, one of his basic basic teachings was that the plain sense of Scripture was incorrect. That when you read the Bible, just the common sense meaning of a passage was not the right meaning. That you had to look for some hidden meaning. Some meaning that was not really stated, but maybe implied or somehow in a word somewhere that you might have to make it a symbolic word to find the meaning. So you had to read in all sorts of hidden meanings. Now the problem with this was that only a few people, those who were really spiritual, could figure out what the real hidden meanings were. And so only the leaders in this Gnosticistic group were able to discover the real meaning. And only if you really arrived spiritually would you be able to. And so John is writing this letter to a church where evidently these teachings had invaded the church. And he's saying to them the truth of God, the plain truth, the plain meaning of Scripture, the common sense meaning of Scripture is what's important. Don't look for some hidden meaning somewhere. Look for the plain sense, common sense meaning of the Scripture. In fact, Martin Luther, the Reformation, you know, Martin Luther was a firm believer that the people, the laity, ought to be able to read the Scriptures for themselves. At that time in church history, uh, the Bible was in Latin. And unless you knew Latin, you couldn't read the Bible, and usually only the priest and the uh, monks knew Latin. And so you would have to depend, say if it, we were in that kind of situation, you would have to depend on me and Steve to read the Bible to you. You would not have a Bible in your home. 
you would have no idea what the Bible said. You would only know from what I told you it said. And if I told you wrong, well, you wouldn't know any different. Now, the Catholic Church wanted to keep it that way, and you can imagine why. But Martin Luther said, no, that's not right. That every person should be able to read the Bible in his own language. We need to write the Bible in German so that the people can all read it for themselves, that everybody can read the Bible. And of course, the church leaders said, oh no, we can't allow that. Boy, they'll come up with all sorts of weird ideas if we let everybody read the Bible. They've got to depend on us to tell them what it means. But Martin Luther had an idea about that. He said that the common sense meaning of Scripture was the right interpretation of a passage. When you read it, what it seemed to say was almost always the right meaning of a passage, unless it was obviously some allegorical passage, like in Psalms where it speaks of God breathing smoke. But just normally as you read a passage and the common sense meaning is what's presented, then you ought to take it that way. In fact, it's told of Martin Luther, and I assume that it's true, that he might be riding down the road in his carriage and he would be puzzled over a passage of Scripture. What does it mean? And he would see a farmer out in the field plowing, an uneducated farmer. And he would stop his carriage, he would take his Bible, he would go out to this farmer and he would stop him and he would say, let me read this to you and you tell me what it means to you. And he would read the passage to the farmer and say, what does it mean to you? And the farmer, of course, would give him just a common sense meaning of what it said. And he would take this, and this would help him greatly because he'd gotten so involved in various interpretations, he'd lost the true common sense meaning of the passage. And this would help bring him back to the obvious meaning of what the Scripture was saying. And John is basically, I think, saying the same thing, that the truth is important. The common sense meaning, the plain meaning of Scripture must be looked at and must be seen as what God is saying. The truth of God, in fact, cannot be separated from the Christian life. Look what he says, first of all. He says that he loves the church in truth, verse 1. He says, whom I love in truth. You see, you cannot separate the church and the Christian life from truth. John says, I love the church in truth. Uh, therefore, he loves the church because of what the church is. Why the church exists. The purpose for the church. And where is all that found? In the Word of God. And so if John was going to love the church properly, he had to love the church in truth. And let me tell you something else. If we're going to love God properly, we must love God in truth. You and I cannot know much about God apart from His Word. All we can know apart from His Word is the general revelation of creation. And you can know a few things about God. His power, His orderliness, His providential care. You can know a few things about Him from creation, but the real revelation of God is found in His Word and in the person of Jesus Christ uh, in the greatest manifestation. And if you're going to love God, you've got to love Him in truth. You've got to know who He is and love Him for who He is. If you're going to worship God, you've got to worship Him how? In spirit and in truth. And so our worship of God cannot be separated from His truth. You know, if we're going to love each other properly, we've got to love each other in truth. You ever thought about that? To really love somebody properly, you need to know the truth about that person. Really know that person. For instance, say that uh, 
I look at you and I see somebody that I know has been involved in some, uh, some sin in the past. And how am I going to love that person? Maybe it's something that they have done that I consider to be a very gross and, and uh, hideous sin. And boy, it just turns my stomach to think about it. Well, how am I going to love that person as a fellow Christian now they've gotten saved? Well, I've got to love them when I know the truth about them. And the truth is, as a Christian, God says they are washed. They've been cleansed. That that old sin has been washed away. That they're a new creation now. That the old man has passed away. And so when I love them, I've got to love them as a new creation. I've got to love them as blood-bought, washed people. Right? And you've got to do the same thing with people. We've got to see them as God sees them in truth. Maybe a person's a Christian, but they did something that really hurts you bad. Well, you've got to realize that they are immature in the faith. And we've got to love them as God loves them. God didn't stop loving them because they sinned. He doesn't, didn't condone the sin, but He didn't stop loving them. He's continuing to work in their lives to bring them into Christ-likeness. And so we've got to see them the way God sees them. As uh, saints who are still immature in the Christian faith. And then as we see people from the way God sees, as we see them in truth, that we can love them properly. Now the second thing John says is that all who know the truth comprise the church universal. Continuing in verse 1. He says, not only I, but also all who know the truth. John says, not only do I love you, but all who know the truth love you. Well, who is he talking about? All who love the church. He loved the truth. He's talking about the church universal. You know, the Bible speaks of the church as a local group of believers, Brookhaven Church, but also there's a sense in which all Christians, not only in this world, but all Christians of all ages, uh, all of the New Testament age, comprise the church. All right? The church universal. And he says everybody who knows the truth is a part of that church universal. Now, he's not talking about intellectual assent here. He's talking about personally knowing the truth. Who understands and believes the truth of God. That Christ, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That understand the truth about salvation comes through faith in Christ. And through faith in him alone. As a product of the grace of God. Not an intellectual but an experiential knowledge of the truth of Christ himself. And of what the scriptures teaches. People who have that personal knowledge and experiential knowledge and understand and believe the truth are a part of that church, universal. He also says that the truth abides in Christians, verse 2. He says, for the sake of the truth which abides in us. Now, you ever thought about that? As a Christian, the truth abides in you. Well, Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, if my words abide in you, and what are his words but truth? If my words abide in you and you abide in me, ask whatever you will and it shall be given unto you, John 15. So Jesus talks about the truth abiding in us. And the truth is the word of God abides in the Christian. It lives in us. Because the Bible says of itself, the word of God is alive and active. You ever thought about that? The Bible being alive? It's not a dead book. The truth of God, the Word of God, is not dead. It's alive and active, it says, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Word of God, in a spiritual sense, it is spirit, Jesus said, my words are spirit and life. 
And the Word of God, which is alive and abides in us, does a work in us. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to perform a work in us to help bring us into Christ-likeness. It gives us strength to stand against temptation. It gives us perseverance to keep on going when we want to quit. The Word of God does that work in us as the Spirit takes it. And then he tells us that the truth will be with us forever. Last part of verse 2. For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Heaven and earth shall pass away, Jesus said, but my words shall endure forever. You remember on Wednesday night, we said truth is what is real, reality. And God's word is ultimate reality because God is ultimate reality. Therefore, when everything else might pass away, God and his word will remain forever. And so the truth of God does not cease to be, but it shall um, remain and abide in us forever. So when you hang on to the truth of God, you've got something that'll go with you through eternity, folks. And most of the things you got in this life, you're going to leave behind when you check in to the heavenly place. But truth is going to go with you. You're going to take it with you. The truth of God. So learn as much as you can and take it with you. All right, after the greeting, John now gives a commendation for those who are walking in the truth. Verse 4, he says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. John has found out some way that some of these Christians are indeed living out the truth of God, and he commends them for this. In fact, it brings a gladness to his spirit to hear of their obedience to God's Word. Now, what does it mean to walk in the truth? Well, it means to live in harmony with God's Word. It means that everything we say or do portrays a life that's governed by God's Word. It means that we have consciously and willingly submitted ourselves to the authority of God's Word. Now, I want to ask you if you've ever done that in your life. Have you ever consciously and willingly submitted yourself, your life, your mind, your will to the authority of God's Word? Have you ever come to a place in your life that you said, Lord, I want to right now surrender my life, my will, my mind, my total being to the authority of your Word, that by your grace I will do whatever your Word says. I may not like it, but I will do it. If your word says it, then it's right. It's best. I realize that. No matter what I might think about what your word says, if your word says it, it's right. It's best. The world's way is wrong, and all the impressions and thoughts that I've gotten from the world's way, it's wrong. Your word is what's right. And I heretofore from this day onward will choose to walk according to what your word says, not what the world says, not even what my own thoughts and opinions of the past have told me. But my thoughts, my opinions are going to be subservient to your word. I'm willing to reject everything that I thought that I have valued before. And I want my values to be only what your word Values. Have you ever come to that place in your life that you have made that surrender? 
It means to order our lives by the precepts and the principles of God's Word. It means that you build your family on the principles and precepts of God's Word. It means you go to the Word of God and say, okay, now what does this Word say to me as a family member, as a husband or as a wife or as a child in that family? And I want to build my family on the principles of this Word. It means that you raise your children according to the precepts and principles of this Word. Not what the world says to do, but what the Scripture says to do. And so you search out to find out what God says to do. It means you do your job according to the principles and precepts of God's Word. Again, you see what the Scripture says about how you are to work and what kind of job you ought to do, and you do your job accordingly. It means you regulate your friendships by the principles of God's Word. You regulate your dating relationships by the principles of God's Word. And that guy may be the best-looking guy you ever saw. He may be the nicest guy you ever saw. But if he's not a Christian, no, I'm not going to get involved with him because I know it might lead to other things. And God has clearly said, I am not to be joined to an unbeliever in marriage. And so I'm not going to even start. I mean, you have made a commitment and you will walk by that commitment. It means your pleasure activities are regulated and governed by God's word. And if you're involved in activities in pleasurable situations that are not in agreement with the principles and precepts of the Word, you give them up. You say, no, I'm not going to do this because I have made a conscious decision by the grace of God to order my life by the Word of God. And that's what it means to walk in the truth. And John commends some of the Christians in this church because they were indeed doing that, walking in the truth. Now he gives a commandment in verses 5 and 6, the commandment to love one another. Now, this commandment comes from God. He says, And now I ask you, lady, not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. He means from the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. John 13, as Jesus was in the upper room, he had washed the feet of the disciples. He said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And John's referring back to this event that took place some 60 years earlier. He said, this isn't a new commandment I'm giving you. You've had it. You know what it is. It's come from God, and therefore we are to obey God and love one another. Well, what does it mean to love one another? Well, he gives it about as simply and as practically as I've ever seen it put in verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that we should walk in it. So what does it mean to love one another? It means to walk in obedience to God's Word. That means the most loving thing you can do for somebody, or for everybody for that matter, is to obey the Word of God in your life. That's the most loving thing you can do. Now since God is love... His word is loving. Therefore, for me to obey His word is for me to act lovingly to you. Now, you get that? God is love. Therefore, His word is love. For me to obey His word is for me to act lovingly to you. Now, we need to hear this truth in our day and time. Because many Christians even think that love is a soupy sentimentalism. That we never tell anybody they're doing anything wrong. We never tell them they're involved in sin. Oh, no, no. Just let everything go. Forgive and forget. Let everybody do what everybody wants to do. Just don't get anybody upset. Don't tell anybody they're doing wrong. Love everybody and their mentality means let everybody do what everybody wants to do and just act like everything's okay. 
and don't pay any attention to it. Oh, that's the loving thing, dude. Let's don't stir anything up. But that's not what God says. God says that the loving thing to do is to obey His Word. Right? Therefore, when we tell people what God's Word says, that's loving them, whether they like it or not. Whether they agree with it or not, that's loving them to tell them what God's Word says, even if it might hurt. Back when I was pastoring in Phoenix City, I was fairly uh, new in the pastorate, uh, only a couple of years, maybe even less than two years I had been pastoring there. And we had a, a girl come to the church or called up on the phone and wanted to use our church for a wedding. Now, she was or had been a member of the church. She had not attended in a number of years. Uh, she had been divorced. Her husband just couldn't get along. And so she wanted to get remarried. Well, I said, well, I'll need to talk with the deacons about this and, and see what, uh, what they say. And so I went before the deacons and I said, uh, the church doesn't have a policy about who can use the church and who can't use the church for weddings. And I said, it's not my church, so, you know, I don't feel like it's my place to say who can and who can't. I think the church needs to make a decision on it, and I think the deacons need to study it and bring a recommendation to the church on it. Oh, yeah, well, we think we ought to also. So I said, now, <clears throat> let's look in God's Word and see who has a reasonable expectation that God will bless their marriage. I mean, when you get married in a church, what you're saying is God's blessing this marriage and we want God's blessing, therefore we're getting married in a church. Right? That's what you ought to be saying. I mean, if you don't want God's blessing on it, then you ought to just go get married with the justice of the peace somewhere. But if you want a preacher to marry you in a church, then you're saying we want God to bless it. So I said, who can reasonably expect God will bless their marriage? And we had determined it was those marriages that were in agreement with God's Word. First of all, marriage between two Christians has a reasonable expectation that God will bless it. Uh, a marriage that uh, does not involve people who've been involved in divorce for unbiblical reasons. And as you have heard me say, Scripture allows for remarriage, I think, when a person has divorced because of unfaithfulness or desertion by an unbeliever. Uh, and so if the divorce falls under those two categories, uh, then marriage seems to be allowed. And so I said, under those circumstances, I think they could expect God to bless it. But in any other circumstances, there's no reason to think Scripture would, would give a warrant that God would bless that. So we looked in the Scriptures and they said, oh yeah, that's right, that's right. Oh yeah, now we agree, that's right. So we made a recommendation to the church that <clears throat> no one be allowed to use the church for weddings unless their weddings were between two people who were either both Christians or both people who... Uh, were Christians and neither one had been divorced for unscriptural or unbiblical reasons. Nobody else would, could use the church. Well, you would have thought I'd dropped an atomic bomb right in the middle of the church somewhere. I mean, folks started getting upset. They started getting mad. Boy, I got a letter from a girl that grew up in the church, but she wasn't even a member of the church anymore. She'd moved to Montgomery. Her family was still in the church and she got wind of it through the bulletin. And she wrote me a letter and said, that's the most un unloving thing I have ever heard of that you won't let somebody get married in the church just because they've been divorced for an unbiblical reason. That's the most unloving thing I've ever heard. You're just going to turn many, many folks away. And then somebody said, I can't believe you won't let a Christian marry a non-Christian. That's the most unloving thing we ever heard of to say a Christian can't marry a non-Christian in the church. One person even said, 
You mean to tell me if, if my daughter who's grown up in this church and we have given faithfully to this church for all these years and she meets a nice, moral man, though he may not be a Christian, but he's moral, and she wants to get married, that you're saying she can't use this church? I say, well, that's what the Bible says. And so, man, you never heard such... I mean, I had deacons coming in my office saying, Preacher, we need to look at this thing again. I mean, we're just causing all this furor. And, of course, you know what I said. I said, well, if it's truth, it's truth. And if it causes furor, then so be it. I mean, it's true. I said, but you men made the motion, so you've got to determine what you're going to do with it. I said, now, I'm going to stand where I've always stood, and that's on what God's Word says, but you do what you want to do. Well, those group of guys decided that, uh, well, <clears throat> it's just causing too much trouble. So uh, they decided just to indefinitely table the motion at the next business meeting, and the church never came around to ever voting on what to do. So as it stood, two homosexuals could come and say, we want to use the church to get married, and who could tell them they couldn't? They wanted me to tell them. But see, they didn't want to stand on the word. See, But when you love somebody, you're willing to stand on the word. I said, now wait a minute. I think the most loving thing we can do for somebody is say, now, wait a minute. I mean, God's word says that you're not to marry this unbeliever. Now, it's not loving for me just to ignore what the God's word says and say, oh, yeah, I'll marry you. Fine. Why not? Man, I've seen too many homes that have suffered, and you have too, where unbelievers have been married to believers. And boy, it's just been problem after problem after problem. Now, by God's grace, I've seen some folks get saved. And that's the exception, but praise God for that. But I don't know any of those cases where the person knew it was wrong when they went into it. They just were unaware that Scripture taught that, and, uh, and God intervened by His grace. But I've seen too much heartache. So it's not unloving to say, hey, let's obey God's Word. That's loving, right? God's Word is clear. It's true. To tell somebody, hey, you, you can't expect God to bless this marriage. Now, don't come in here thinking God's going to bless it if it's not according to His Word. And so uh, to, to say, hey, let's talk about sin and let's talk about repentance and let's come to God for forgiveness. I mean, I even said, look, <clears throat> if you've been divorced for an unbiblical reason, you come and let's talk about it. Let's confess that sin to God. Let's ask God's forgiveness. Let's go and seek to be reconciled to that uh, former mate. And then let's see what God does. You know, I wasn't just slamming the door completely shut, but you'd have thought, man, it was the meanest, cruelest, I was the worst guy in town. But just because they didn't understand, to love people is to obey God's Word. Now, this means the church discipline is loving. This means confronting a brother who is in sin is loving. It means to call for God's order in the home and in the church is loving. It means to help somebody who is in genuine need is a loving thing to do. It means to share Christ with someone who is not a Christian is a loving thing to do. So John says the commandment is love one another. And that means obey God's word. Now the fifth thing he says, he gives some cautions concerning false teachers. In verse 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. He gives us a crucial question that we must ask anyone who claims to be a teacher or preacher of God's Word, and that is, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? The false teachers of His day and many following Him have a faulty view of Jesus. For instance, the Gnostics denied that God became man in Christ. 
They denied that Jesus was totally man and totally God. They saw the flesh as evil, and there's no way God could take on evil, so God did not become man in Christ. So they denied that. The Jehovah Witnesses of our day deny that Jesus is co-equal with Jehovah. They deny the Trinity. He is an inferior God to Jehovah. So that's an inferior view of Jesus. The Mormons deny Jesus was the unique Son of God. They'd say he's the Son of God, but then they'd say you are too, if you, uh, and you can be the Son of God. And they would say as Jesus was, or uh, you can be someday. He was just a little ahead of the process. But we all can be sons of God like Jesus was. So that's denying uh, that Christ was God come in the flesh, uniquely the Son of God. The Moonies denied Jesus was fully and totally God. They denied that he was the second person of the Trinity. They said it was a mistake when he died, that he shouldn't have died, that he didn't fulfill God's mission. He was supposed to get married and have children, and he didn't do it. The disciples of Christ's church, they denied Jesus' death was totally sufficient, and therefore we must add baptism to be saved. Now that's an inferior view of Christ and his life and death and resurrection. And so any person who teaches the truth or teaches the word of God or claims to be a teacher, you've got to ask the question, well, now tell me, what do you really believe about Jesus? Did he come in the flesh? Is he totally God and God man? And was his death totally, absolutely sufficient for our uh, salvation? And salvation comes simply through faith in Christ. Then he goes on to say that these are the deceivers and they are the ones who are against Christ. He's not talking about the Antichrist, but those who are against Christ. Now he gives a word of caution for the Christians in verse 8. Watch yourselves that you may not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. If a Christian kind of gets off into some of these uh, groups that are not on the word, uh, they won't lose their salvation, but they will lose some of the rewards that they would have had if they'd maintained their level of obedience to the Lord. Well, how do you know if someone's saved or not, if they get in one of these groups? He tells us in verse 9. And anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So if a person comes to the point that they deny the basic biblical teachings about Christ, then that person gives evidence that he is not saved. If a person comes to the place, I don't care if they've been a member of a Baptist church for 30 years, but if they come to a place that they reject the deity of Christ, that he was totally God, totally man, they reject the total sufficiency of Christ, like death and resurrection, then they're given evidence that they never were born again. Why? Because God is able to keep his children from falling. He's not going to let his children get that far that they will repudiate and deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, uniquely Son of God, and Savior of his people. They won't come to that point. Now, they may go to meetings, and they may be a part of a group for a while. They may listen to the teachings of this group. But if you sit them down and press them on these basic teachings, I realize they say that Jesus shouldn't have died and made a mistake, but you know, I don't believe it. I believe it. He was God's son and he died for sin. They will not give up those basic teachings of Christ. God's spirit will keep that truth in their lives. Uh, But if they come to the place that they openly reject and deny those truths, and John says they're given evidence that they are not children of God. They do not have God. But the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Now, is it a sin to say hello to a Mormon missionary? 
He tells us in verse 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the teachings of Christ, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now just reading that, you might say, Oh yeah, well that says don't even give him a greeting, so I shouldn't even say hello to him. Well again, you've got to realize the historical meaning of the passage. Remember, first of all, the early church met in houses. So when he says, do not receive him into your house, in verse 10, he may be saying, don't receive him into your church meeting. He may be saying, look, don't let him come in and start teaching. If you do, you're participating in his evil. But he may mean that, but he at least means that the teachers of the early Christian days traveled around, and of course they didn't have hotels and motels, so they stayed in the homes of Christians. And so if a person came to your community... And he was not teaching the truth, but he was a false teacher. Then you should not greet him by taking him into your home, letting him live in your home, you putting food on his table, supporting him, looking after him, and in so doing, you're actually participating in his false teaching. Because you're taking him into your home, and so-and-so says, well... He must be pretty good. Look at uh, uh, Bill and Jane have taken him into their home and he's teaching in their house when the Christians come together. So he must be all right. Let's have him over to our place and let him teach. He said, no, you don't do that. He's not saying it's a sin to say hello to a Mormon missionary at your front door. He's not even saying it's a sin to let him walk in and say a few words so that you might share Christ with them. But he's saying don't support them. Don't give any money to them. And these Jehovah Witnesses want to hand you this material and then say give a donation. Don't you give it. Don't you give it. You take the money, you take their material and throw it in the trash, but don't you give them any money. You'll be participating in that, in that heresy if you do. Don't give it. Just say, well, no, if you want the money, you take it back. Don't support them. And you watch out who you're sending money to that you're listening to on the radio and television also. And don't support those that do not hold the proper teachings about Christ and the faith. So he's talking about giving support, inviting them into your home and, and letting them stay there as they teach. He says, don't do this if they're not true teachers. So John has a lot of practical truth in this letter, doesn't he? And I trust you found the answers to those questions that we raised at the beginning because I have given them. If you have some more questions, you can write them at this time as the ushers come forward. We will take the offering and any questions you might have about this morning, Steve will be glad to answer. Any about tonight? I'll be glad to answer. <clears throat>